This podcast is a publication of the Engineering Management Institute, where we are committed to building professional development systems, including project management and people leadership programs that support the growth of engineers and their firms. Download our AE Industry Trends Report for insights on the great resignation, remote work productivity, and people-centric cultures. To get your copy, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Welcome to another episode of the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast. In this episode, I'll be talking with Leonard Sands, who's a global business line director for land at Frugro. We'll be talking about his extensive career journey, the evolution and innovations in land site characterization and geological data gathering. I'm your host, Jared Green, and I'm excited to be bringing you another episode of the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast. But before we get started, we're going to hear a word from our sponsor for today's episode. This video is brought to you by Menard. USA. Menard USA is a specialty ground improvement contractor that works nationally providing design-build ground improvement solutions at sites with problematic soils. Menard works closely with civil, structural, and geotechnical engineers to minimize foundation costs for wide ranges of soil conditions, structure types, and loading conditions. To learn more about Menard USA or for help on your next project, please visit www.menardusa.com. All right, Leonard, welcome to the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast. How are you doing? I'm brilliant. I'm, I'm great. And, and thank you for the warm welcome to actually be with you today. I appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to share part of my journey with you. Excellent. Well, I love that. Love that. Love that you could be here with us. And just, just you know, set the stage for us. If you could talk a little bit more about your career journey, tell the uh, listeners and those that are watching how you progressed from your academic studies in civil and geotechnical engineering to becoming the global business line director for land at Frugro. And also let the folks know where you're calling in from. I think that'll be interesting for folks. Sure. Um, well, today I'm, I'm in Leichendam, which is a, a, a town or a part of the Den Haag city in, in the Netherlands. So that's, uh, yeah, in Europe. If, if those out there mm-hmm. want to get a reference, we're sitting in Europe and we're across the pond from the UK. That's a good reference for you. So, uh, no, I, I'd really like to share my story. Um, and if you've got a couple of minutes, I can we actually take you on a bit of a journey. Take, take, us, on, I, take I, us on the journey. You can give us the long version. we got time. <laughs> so, so, I think everyone out there in the, in the geotech industry, we have, so, we, we have definitely a connection with, with the outside world. We, we love to be outside. We uh, love to actually feel the soil, actually touch it. And in all of us, there is a, this sense of adventure. I think that the unknown and what lies beneath the earth is is always in our minds. In fact, we can visualize it better than most people. Yeah. Hence, why we're where we are. But for me, it, it started when I was a, a child, around ten years of age. I I left New Zealand, which is my birthplace, and uh, left on a yacht to sail around the South Pacific. Hmm. And that that was a journey that really transformed my whole life and was one of my fundamental experiences, which connected me with nature connected me with what's out there beyond the horizon. That experience got me uh, exposed to nature, to the ocean, the vastness of the ocean, culture. It got me exposed to you know, the weather and, and how that can influence life. Um, through that journey, we ended up uh, sailing through all of the islands of the South Pacific, uh, Vanuatu, Solomon, uh, Papua New Guinea. And in the end, the, the journey kind of stopped after one year in Australia. So at that point, it, it's kind of like where the story starts to build up to uh, my academic journey. 
because up until that point, I'd, I'd left school. I I didn't actually uh, study uh, at school, and I got self-schooled on on a yacht sailing around the ocean. Okay. And 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 that's kind of where you get to that moment in life where you have to make a decision: is, is it going to be a trade where you're going to do something manual or for me, it was actually cycling. I uh, I was a, a full-time cyclist, and I got to that point where I realized I, I, I needed to use my brain more than my muscle. <laughs> and that's where I entered into the engineering space. I, I kind of uh, did a shortcut of, of actually educating myself to get into university. Mm-hmm. That was pretty tough, yeah. but it actually prepared me for actually, as we all know, engineering is... is uh, it's got a high dropout rate in the first year. Um, what what uh, you see in many programs there, where you get a hundred or two hundred people, and probably you will see it by year two, twenty percent, thirty percent remaining. Um, and I started that in Townsville, in uh, James Cook University, where I, I studied uh, civil engineering um, through the, their bachelor program, um, and it actually has got a quite a good geotechnical uh, group there at the time, and continues to be recently in good in geotech. So I, I took that that civil engineering degree, uh, graduated, and then aspired to become a geotech engineer. And that's where Nate, that experience with the outside world, the love for the earth, started to blend into civil engineering. And and that's where I got my what was my postgraduate degree, masters in in uh, geotechnical uh, engineering science. Uh, yeah. So that 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 was the start of where I, I got onto the academic um, ac- academic journey. Okay. And then really how I took a path from there to go into the professional life, um, again, another adventure. It, it, it took a journey to actually fly to the Middle East. I, I flew to Dubai um, okay. and uh, started working with Frugro back in, uh, in 98, actually, 1998. And from that point, really started to actually get into the professionalism of, of being a geotechnical engineer, uh, logging uh, soil, logging rock, going offshore, in fact, and doing some pretty amazing projects and taking it all of the way to doing uh, the processing of the data, the laboratory testing and the writing reports, delivering the reports and actually backing them up with anal- analytical um, evidence. And uh, you can imagine over a few years of, of, of doing that repeatedly, you really, I built a foundation of, of what, what is the art of geotechnics. And literally it is a, it's a bit of an art for us because there is a lot of uncertainty. Yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty that uh, geotechnical engineers have to deal with, and sometimes we consider a bit of a black box. But sometimes we're able to come out with actually quite intuitive uh, interpretations of of, uh, of geotechnics. So, yeah, that was the Middle East, uh, Frugro. I then moved on to uh, another assignment in Frugro, which was in Hong Kong, and as a few years in Hong Kong working for Frugro and. If you get to experience Hong Kong, anyone out there, a listener who's been to Hong Kong uh, or the Middle East, you, you've you've got some amazing geotechnical um, arenas to play in, and uh, that's where I I got to experience helicopters uh, doing geotechnical engineering up up on a mountain uh, on a bamboo scaffold, um, <laughs> getting water pumped up in in a series of of pumps up to the site. Uh, in those situations, drilling, I think we were drilling 300 meters, which is a thousand foot more or less, uh, into the mountain, taking uh, pressure meter, doing pressure meter tests, uh, rock cores, all sorts of great stuff, which was really, really the fun stuff of like how you, you want to experience geotech in its raw form. <laughs> and then after that, 
yeah, the journey keeps on going. It, uh, it arrives actually in Venezuela where I, um, I, I then go from Hong Kong to, to Venezuela and I start to become actually a consultant at that point. And I start to advise on what is the best practice, what is the programs that you would actually deploy for collecting the right data in the right place and actually valuing that data to the end user, which is ultimately the engineer to make a decision or, or could be a project director to make a decision. And in that, I, yeah, some wonderful experiences uh, around Venezuela and, and many other countries in South America I got to touch, um, being part of the culture there. And then it, actually uh, the next step was uh, Houston. So into Houston, for Figuro again, and, and then being more in a commercial role. So you can appreciate you starting a bachelor, you, you go into uh, geotechnical engineering field work, you go into more senior roles. And as you get on, you get into the commercial space, which is more management. And at that point, is I'm taking on a portfolio for Fugro, where in the commercial arena, you, you're responsible for an area. And that, that area was uh, South America and the Gulf of Mexico, where we had uh, ships. We do have ships today, which, which they're active collecting data uh, for clients, for operators to actually make decisions on what they want to do to, to develop an asset. And those, those projects were vastly between Colombia, some projects, wonderful projects in Peru, um, also in Suriname, Trinidad, a bit in Venezuela, a lot in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, all along the coast. And even there was uh, projects even up in Alaska where we'd go up, up there and actually uh, in certain times of the year kind of um, uh, work in Alaska collecting data again and just getting an information base that can be informed for insights and decision making. And then the journey keeps on going. I, I don't know. Keep <laughs> going. Keep, keep going. going. No, this is, this is keep going. Don't stop. <laughs> but uh, it, it then progresses into becoming more senior roles actually in Fugrow. And, and that's the beautiful thing about Fugrow is you've got this career path, which you can start right at the bottom, uh, right as a graduate. And you've got any career path you can imagine. I, I, I could have ended up in in a function of HR if I wanted or others, but I, I've chose the management path that then led a region of uh, the Middle East. I went back to the Middle East, um, worked on projects through Africa, uh, through the Mediterranean, and of course the Gulf of the Middle East, and and really just built up a portfolio of understanding what is a business portfolio of, of managing site investigation projects, um, managing client portfolios, managing how do you deliver data faster, accurate, how do you actually meet the needs of, of the client ultimately. And, and that's that shaping of my journey into becoming more client focused. So then after a, a period in the Middle East, that then goes into what is our head office here in, in Leichendam to then take on the, the responsibility for a global remit. And that, that global remit for what we have as a portfolio called land is really to actually shape the future, shape uh, our strategy shape our direction uh, with the team into what we will be in five years, what will be in two years for for a business. And that also touches on key elements of an industry. What what is our industry? We we contemplate. We actually write down and we strategize about what is the industry needing, where does the industry need to go and and need to get better and improve. And we build that into to actually a program which then our business can deliver in, in the different areas of the world, in all regions, in fact. And that's where I am today. We've just finished up our, our strategy cycle. Uh, we have a corporate cycle every more or less five years. Uh, released our strategy and, and that we've got a very clear path of, of growth and, 
and also technology that we're going to be uh, delivering into the market. Wow, that's that's really amazing and really exciting. Thank you for sharing that. I think that um, you know we have folks that listen in from and watch from all over the world. Some people are students. We have professors. We have folks that are you know earlier in their career, first you know first second year as an engineer. We have contractors, consultants. But I think the reality is that just listen to what you just said. There's a journey that we're on. A lot of times it is not linear. <laughs> Never. Sometimes it may take you to different geologic conditions. It may take you to different, you know, uh, geographic places, different countries, different regions. So it's just really cool to hear that full circle where you are now, because you couldn't be on the planning and visioning side without having had all those experiences that you had. So just really, really, really awesome. And if you could take some time to tell us, what would you say is, um, there's a lot to unpack what you just said, but what are some of the most significant innovations that you've witnessed uh, in land site characterization and geological data gathering? I mean, you're talking about going to sites with like uh, helicopters, right? <laughs> you've seen a lot. So what, what comes to mind when you think about most significant innovations? Yeah, there is actually a, a nice point to reflect on, and philosophically, it can be debated quite endless, endlessly in our industry. But um, from looking at parallel industries, uh, we can see our industry is actually probably the least digital. We uh, we still have a passion for the SPT test, so to love to <laughs> bang that SPT into the ground and actually get some manual measurements by a driller. We still do a lot of manual manual management, and um, sometimes I think. The market or the industry out there is a little bit frustrated about the time cycles that are are between when you mobilize and when actually the result comes as a as a report or a borehole log, and those can be in the order of months, um, depending on the size of the project. It could be weeks if it's a very quick project, and often what we're challenged with, and and it goes back to uh, the the uncertainty side of our industry, is that. You're dealing with geotechnics, which somewhat probabilistically pokes into the ground or does a biopsy of the ground in a hope that they're going to actually hit the actual ailment or the, or the hazard, which is actually below the ground. We hope that it's there. And more often than not, we put the, the, the foundation outline of what we intend to develop as an asset, and then we align the site investigation program to that, that footprint. But sometimes you would appreciate that the the actual hazard or the the risk that you face with the underground is not always aligned with the foundation footprint. And you may be, it could be 20 feet off or 50 feet off, 100 feet off. There is something that has dramatically changed and that can have an overall impact on the performance of the asset uh, underground. So what we're working on and, and rolling out uh, now is, um, is a way to start very early in the asset cycle. So... If you talk at site investigation is is in the phase where you're designing. You you want to design a, a, an asset, a structure to actually serve its purpose. And what we see is when you're getting into that mode of designing, you're pretty much committed on what is the outcome. Mm-hmm. What you're trying to do is actually find what are the extremities of the data to actually address the sizing perhaps or, or the configuration of the foundation if, you, mm-hmm. if you're looking at a, a built asset. But we're seeing that there is a need to go much earlier, probably pre-FID, pre-finance investment decision-making, and then really screen the site with some uh, indirect measurements. So not not going out there and probing blindly, but going out there, scanning it in 3D, getting a 3D model with good resolution, but actually with data that can give you geotechnical parameters. So 
the one thing the holy grail is in geotechnics is the shear wave velocity. If you've got a shear wave velocity, you ultimately can find a, a step towards getting to a quite a, a healthy parameter in geotechnics. Mm-hmm. And overall, scanning it in 3D, we've got a solution, uh, SWANS, which we actually deploy. It's passive seismic, so it listens to a vast area of noises, uh, spectrums. Uh, so you've got the really low uh, frequencies up to the high frequencies all in the same receiver. And you've probably got in the order of a 1,000, uh, at least 500 of these nodes which are listening over a period of two days. And we've done projects where they're spread out over, a, let's say it could be a kilometer by 500 meter wide strip of site. Mm-hmm. In the end, by two weeks, we've actually, after screening, we have actually got a, a three-dimensional ground model which has got shear wave velocity throughout down to 300 foot. So you can see that the, that early start even pre-FID, where you can get an appreciation of the trends of the anomalies in the site that you're you're looking at, then shapes into decision-making, which allows you to say, hey, let's move the foundation in this configuration. Let's go for a shallow foundation, or let's go for a deep foundation, or making a, a combination of those before we start probing, before we start putting CPTs, bore holes down. And that, that insight that you get very early uh, determines a lot of the, even the, the, the budgets required mm. for site mitigation, for construction, for design, that can then bring bought forward to then make decisions early. Yeah. But decisions which are based on uh, really a, a site-wide data set. And that's, that's really the innovation that I, I've, over my years, in, in being confronted by clients who challenge you and say, <laughs> We really, really know what is down there, <laughs> or in the end, maybe you know we've we're we're getting more settlement. Uh, we're getting these issues on the site. What is the actual problem? Can you diagnose it for me? And and it often comes down to the spatial uncertainty that you have between data, mm-hmm. and then also the quality, uh, the quality of the data. If you haven't got the right data in the right place uh, and then appreciating what is between it, you'll get a you'll get a, a band of uncertainty that impacts all of the decisions down down the track so so yeah it, that that would by my far my my greatest kind of passion would be around that and where i see the the industry changing that's awesome that's awesome um i mean that's saturated with with innovation so i love it i love it now we think about all the things you've done what what do you think's the most memorable project you can think of i know it's hard to pick a we'll say favorite but, but you know i, th- I think most, those most projects memorable. where there's there's challenges mm-hmm. yeah, yeah I, when when you're put up to a challenge, you've got an expectation on you to actually deliver. And there's there's this type of project which I, I, I can make it an equivalent to like if you were if Elon Musk is landing a rocket on Mars, you know, you've got to actually you you've got your foundation made on your rocket. You can't really change the foundation. Uh you're gonna arrive at the site uh and you're gonna actually land it and found found the the rocket on the the surface of Mars. So in fact, you, you'll have to actually know what is the geotechnical properties of the ground there to found the rocket on. Uh, that rocket's going to be there for a while. And in geotechnical world, there is actually similar projects where we literally within 48 hours of arriving to a site, we have done the site investigation, we've done the laboratory testing, we've done the analysis, and we've actually proven the foundation like a rocket landing that is safe to actually operate uh, going forward. So very high intensity period where these uh, large jack-up platforms for 
for exploration purposes, go out to a site. Uh, they they pin down, and literally that time that they do a soft pinning, as you would probably hover down to the surface of a planet, mm-hmm. you've got to actually go there and immediately drill a borehole, take the samples in the borehole underneath the rig, from the rig, and ex- extract all of the data and the interpretation out of that borehole, and then within 12 hours go in and do the analysis of the foundation when it gets into the different load stages of really getting to full load of its uh, operation. And then handing that over to the the people that are on the, the the rig move master, and then putting your your reputation on the line to say this is my where I believe the foundation will sit uh, beneath the seabed, and then you've got to stay there and wait for it to be proven. <laughs> and everybody knows so, where so you're that, sitting. That, that, <laughs> that pressure of intensity of really uh, backing your result and 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 standing behind it literally is is uh, i would say probably the most profound experience i had in my my career. Uh that's great. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Now, uh you talked a little bit about the non-intrusive diagnosis techniques that have evolved. Talk a little bit about the impact that they've had on the industry. The impact is if it, it, I, there's always these great analogies that you can take from parallel industry and and the one the one industry i do look into often is medical in the medical industry, if you if you were before the the seventies, you would obviously go into a doctor or a surgeon's place, and you 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 would experience a a process of getting biopsies. You would they would take biopsies, and with the hope that they've actually got the right sample uh, to actually then make a judgment on what is the treatment. And if you go even earlier than the seventies, you you'd hope that you'd survive from all of the biopsies that you can actually live a life. And then in the 70s, what, what the medical industry ended up doing is they moved into medical imaging, um, and it, it started as a journey. It wasn't, it wasn't a, a moment where the industry just switched, but in the 70s, progressively, what the industry ended up doing is, is moving towards a proactive uh, way of, of screening and looking at the body holistically and then acting on what is the right thing to do. Even to the point now where the uh, the industry in the in, in medical uh, arenas they actually use screening to guide even operations. You've got uh, processes where you can actually see what you're doing inside the body while you're doing a biopsy or treatment. Now, if you take that analogy and transplant it into what we are to the geotechnical industry, the transformation from doing biopsies, boreholes, uh, CPTs, getting data, and and then I hope that you actually hit and strike the actual problem in the ground happens today. And it's culture that we have we hold on to dearly. Um, there's an ecosystem which all of us are part of the industry actually uh, are backing. And to change that culture around the world is very difficult. Yeah. We tend to be a risk averse in our, in our industry, uh, build in conservatism and, and probably uh, sit behind a few things. Those that are out there are actually quite challenging. They push the envelope. But in large, we're relatively conservative. Now, to actually make that switch into doing early screening where you can get a holistic view of the ground first before you start probing and biopsying is happening. But like the medical industry, it'll take time to actually get that switching done. But the first adopters will actually get the benefit. And where there's been in the medical industry, for instance, in America, there have been pioneers in some of this. Really, the American industry has benefited a lot in those uh, technology advances. And likewise, in, in geotechnical space, there will be certain industries, certain markets that will actually say, you know, this is a smart way to do it. 
it's uh, lowering the risk, lowering the impact, and uh, we can actually deliver you know, in a hope that uh, mega projects, which have got a brand for being late over budget, are going to be on time and on budget. And when we get to that stage in the construction industry where mega projects are on time, on budget, there is going to be a more investment that goes into infrastructure. There's going to be a more of a belief behind all of those decisions in, in mega projects. So, so yeah, it's 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 going to be a journey. But those that adopt early will get the benefit early. Makes yeah. a lot of sense. You want to talk a little bit about the role and and the importance of digital models and also forecasting when you talk about geotechnical engineering today. Yeah. The the future around where we are is is quite ripe for transformation and disruption. The AI is impacting, I think, all of our lives today. Yeah. Uh, those that actually take on AI are going to be leveled up to those probably that are already of a higher intelligence. So a uh, human plus AI will be better than um, AI alone. And uh, you know, sometimes your your human plus AI would be as as, as good as what is a, a, an intelligent um, an intellectual. So where we are in ground modeling is is philosophically in the same space of that developing the early site screening model and getting in early so that you can start the journey from pre-FID, already have a, a three-dimensional ground model, which will be having uncertainty attached to it. But progressively, that ground model moves through the life cycle of the asset as it goes into uh, uh, preliminary a site investigation into you know, design, into construction, and then even further into the later asset cycle where they monitor the the asset for performance. Starting with the digital model at the beginning becomes a a, a point, a, a juncture where everyone will actually have a single source of truth, rather than having their set of data in their hard drive. But literally a, a three-dimensional model where it can be interactive with the surface world. The surface world has got its BIM um, structure. It's got its structural engineering capabilities. The, the future is getting into that harmony between the subsurface world and the surface world so that the two can interact. And that point when they can interact with a ground model, as it gets enriched with more data iteratively through synthesis, that you have a way to optimize, you have a way to predict, you have a way to be uh, forecasting on budget, forecasting on time. And and those are the big impacts that are going to run through the, the, the industry to the point that we get to on time on budget for many large projects. So digital models, they are the future. They are the evolution that's going to happen, um, I would predict, in the next five years rapidly uh, across the globe. If not, there's a few markets and countries that are already doing that today in largely uh, incoherent uh, workflows. They, they will have their components of, of modeling, but it won't be kind of integrated uh, in, in a single system. Sounds good. Uh, let's switch gears a little bit. What strategies and technologies have been key when you look at uh, improving data quality and land site characterization? Yeah, that I'm not sure your your background on a kind of way where you see the the industry or or even your experience in the field. Um, do you have any thoughts on actually how things have actually been in the past and how they could be in the future? Because I've got ideas, but I, I really would like to to hear how how you see it uh, actually. 
Well, I mean, you have more background than I do just because you're seeing things internationally. I think that a lot of my stuff has been domestic. And I think that um, when we're working on mega projects, we have more, similar to what you said, we have more opportunity to do more than just a typical CPT or SPT. But for the common fare, you know, people need the information now, they need it quickly. And a lot of times the structure engineer or the developer is spelling out what that site characterization looks like. And as a geotech, kind of hamstrung. We said, we like to do some of these things where, you know, the people are doing other places, but we can't, right? But when we had that flexibility, especially when we're working on international projects, we could do a lot more and we could use a lot more of the tools because we have a pretty big toolbox as geotechs, but sometimes we can't use it all because it's just, it's education throughout the industry of what it is we're trying to propose. I I totally agree. And what you're touching on is, uh, is a culture around being very prescriptive in that toolbox. And, and I think you're touching on a, a bit a point that as an industry, we need to, to break out of, of that comfort zone. And I think there's a bit of conservatism by maybe it, sometimes you feel it's a copy paste that, hey, this scope is actually just copy paste from some other scope somewhere else. And when we as, as specialists look at it and you go, really, that is the, the wrong tool yeah. for this application. Mm-hmm. Um, and and by that time, once we're once we're in that mode of actually seeing, hey, this needs to change, there's been already a lot of decisions made before that it kind of make it inflexible for you to add the value to improve the data quality or the data coverage, uh, as an example. And this is where I think moving earlier in the asset cycle to actually create a holistic three dimensional model pre FID. That can be shared, integrated with the surface world is the fundamental tipping point because then you will be able to have AI, which can see the parts of the site which are unique and need to be investigated, and will also be able to propose or recommend what is the best way to address the uncertainty related to that risk. And that's where I see an interactive model which is able to advise and offer options is going to be the key turning point of where we'd use rubber stamp copy paste approaches to SI scopes to truly tuning and designing a site investment scope to actually use the right toolkit for the right location. Once we get that sorted, now you you, you kind of question why are we here? Why are we talking about this now? Why are we why are we debating it when we know it's actually the wrong thing? Why are we influencing the decision makers to actually uh, consider alternatives? And I think it's fundamentally coming down to the view from non-specialists in, uh, that work with our industry is the perception of how our industry performs in being accurate in predictions and forecasting. And I go back to the black box that I referred to in the past. Our engagement with many decision makers, uh, stakeholders who are higher up in projects, they see the geotechnical world as a black box, like a, an art or a science. And they don't see you, they don't understand. And the, the black box represents their inability to understand what's happening inside. Yet us, we're able to actually live in a world which is r- virtual, understanding boreholes in three dimensions under the ground, understanding things on paper in 2D, we're able to craft an interpretation in in our minds of what is it telling us. You try and do that with these stakeholders, they actually see, hey, this is witchcraft. This is kind of like (laughs) in that realm of, 
okay, I I trust you. You're fo- are you. Are you following the ASTM? Are you following the Ashton code? Okay, okay. As long as you follow that and you get the tick the box, uh, I'm okay. But come out of that black box and give us a result. Yeah. And I feel that what we've got to do as an industry is break down that black box so that we can build trust yeah. with all of those un- other engineering stakeholders and decision makers that allows us to be relatable, that allows us to be uh, predictable rather than, oh, I got a surprise for you. <laughs> <laughs> or you brought out bad news. news. Yeah. <laughs> I got some bad news for you. It's all yeah. like the, the doctor yeah. uh, giving you bad news. But um, I think uh, philosophically, that's actually where we struggle as an industry to get the right things done in the right place. Mm-hmm. It's because the decisions are made in the belief that actually, will you get like a bang for your buck out of site investigation? Maybe not. Let's just copy paste and hope that we pick up something, but the construction will handle that and engineering will handle that in its structural design. They will do a safety factor and it'll be be fine. We'll, we'll, we'll sail through this. So yeah, I, I think it's part of us to actually reflect on what we are as an industry and what we do, how we act. Oh, that's very helpful. And I think that that really speaks to the work that, that are being done by you know, professional organizations and just, uh, you know, making sure those conferences, it's not just us talking to us, <laughs> yes. but that we have something that's going out to the industry so that, you know, other folks in the team have an appreciation for what we're doing. So I completely agree with what you're saying there. And for your perspective, what do you think are the biggest challenges when you're looking at large scale geotechnical projects? What are some of the largest challenges to how to manage those? And and the, the, the biggest challenges come into the mega projects by far schedule, um and and budget is the biggest influencer and and those surprises that come out of the black boxes are the are, are what what we as an industry actually struggle with yeah and more often than not you'll find the decisions making early uh about the ground um from assumptions that are actually then sometimes you know to meet those design requirements or the FID decisions our industry is forced to actually say, okay, you have to make this work. You have to actually find a way to make this work. You don't get this working. We have a lot of problems. Yeah. We don't have a project. We don't know how to get there. <laughs> yep. And, and you, you find more time and time again, we as, uh, as, as professionals get squeezed or put into a corner where this has got to make it, you've got to make it work. And then we go iteratively around finding ways to actually solve the problem, but it's too late. You know, that, that is, that is really kind of the, the milk is already spilled, yeah. and that can happen when, when often when it kicks into construction, and the construction the constructor finds a problem. Now, the industry is also siloed, so the risk is siloed, and the constructor tends to say, "Hey, I'll, I'll take that risk on because I'm going to make a buck out of it." And if there's any deviation for what the site investigation has told us, I'll put my hand up for a, a claim. And these buckets of silos can actually be counterproductive, uh, even though that we seek to actually harmoniously deliver a project, but the discoveries that come in later in the project often actually bite us badly. And and I've come across cavities in the ground. I've come across really soft soils in the ground. You can actually have aquifers that uh, have high pressure can actually really disrupt the foundation's performance. You, you've actually seen where one uh, one part of a foundation is operating really well. 
yet the other part of the foundation is having problems with settlement or in even cracking. And those are situations where obviously there is there is a spatial uncertainty which hasn't been addressed. One part of the foundation wasn't properly modeled uh, because the ground wasn't sampled in that place. Uh, and then it comes down to even in-site investigation and the quality of... This, even doing an SBT, you can get it wrong, uh, despite where I believe she can't. It's fail-safe. <laughs> um, even, even in the laboratory... Um, there's so many dependencies in site investigation where doing a measurement in the laboratory, you can get it wrong. It needs forensics to actually work out what is the data telling us. So yeah, there's a multitude of ways where, where projects can go wrong. And that's where moving earlier pre-FID during site screening, you start with a single source of truth. And then from that point on, you aggregate and, and get to a more refined uh, ground model. All right. Thank you for that. And how would you address, this is something that I, I, I know comes up, right? How would you address scope creep in projects? And what are some strategies for how to manage projects with optimistic timeframes and also to ensure timely delivery? And you hinted on some of this already, Leonard, but what are your thoughts there? Yeah, there, there is uh, a few models. And when, when you talk about scope creep, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking at the higher level of the actual asset uh, assets creep. So that's actually the, the design or construction and the delivery of the asset. And that asset can be anything from a, a building. It could be a bridge. It could be a tunnel. And really, when you step look in that, sit back and look at the industry, there is this uh, silo effect. And I, I referred to it before. When there is When there are uh, distinct silos where risk related to a project um, and risk will actually impact your, your scope creep and your, your budget and your time, your cost overruns. When you actually have these silos, there is somewhat hidden risk, which is thrown over between the silos. And that, those silos could be from preliminary design into detailed design. It can go from detailed design into construction and then from construction into operation. Those are the principle. And those hidden risks are often what actually compound uh, maybe might be a, a, an optimism in the design or optimism in the construction uh, methodology. And it's about getting the risk down so that collectively you can actually uh, share the risk. And you can only share the risk when there is a, an owner of the asset which takes the responsibility to manage through and observe and check and, and ensure that the risk isn't left residual for the next next uh, stakeholder so really f from the higher level when you're at an owner this is this is really the big big responsibilities how do you manage the risk to a, an acceptable level that you can move forward without actually causing a future pain future creep um, and that and that can apply into site investigation you know when, when you do a site investigation you're out there to actually focus on a particular area of uh, of, of an asset and that means you you have to actually design the site investigation for its depth. So what is the the foundation influence depth? Um, but you've also got to find the sweet spot in the ground at which the foundation is most active. So that means uh, scheduling your institute tests or your laboratory tests within the depth that is critical for addressing that particular uh, load or a particular uh, movement in the ground. So. 
in site investigation, we can actually uh, have scope creep where where it gets passed on this residual risk by not designing the right site investigation. You touched on it before. Sometimes you just go in there blind. You're told you have to do X, Y, Z. You do it. Uh, you actually have to back your result, but then you qualify it. And what ends up happening is we qualify it, quantify it, and say, hey, you know, this is what it's saying, but beware of this risk caveat. So, so all of the elements are are really needing to to be put into a harmony between site investigation, design, design into construction, and the only way is through the owner operator just to take that and to listen to the specialists that are in that domain. If you're in the phase of site investigation, then the owner to listen to that domain um, and really, really, really tune in to actually what does it mean for me? What does it mean for the project as as a whole? Am I willing to actually accept this this risk and, and carry it forward, or do I really want to bury it? And uh, I go back to the philosophy of how we need to improve as an industry and get away from that black box, because for the owners to actually get comfortable with the risk and to not uh, incur further future scope creep because of risk, we need to be able to have a transparent way to work that they understand literally what we're talking about, what we're actually concerned about, what is the what is the fatal flaw uh, situation. Yeah. That's very important because then it's not, you know, just us making decisions, it's decisions as a team, you know, it's like, yes. so by the way, because this impacts this and this impacts that, what are we going to do? Okay, great, great. Well, before we take our break, Leonard, what, what's the uh, piece of advice you want to offer geotechnical professionals and those that are aspiring to advance in their careers? What's the piece of advice you want to give them before our break? Yeah. I'd, I'd, um, I'd, I'd like to actually hear the answer from you because I, I've got a, I've, I've got an answer that you know that there is uh, everyone has a background uh, and a journey that you've taken. So for for you, I'd like to actually bounce off what you have and what I have, and we can compare uh, our, our kind of philosophy, I guess, in in life learning. I, I would think that uh, for me, it's kind of two things that come to mind. One is to remain curious. You know, you never want to get to the point where it's like, oh, I have my advanced degrees or I have my license. I know it all. We have to remain curious. In order to really provide value, you have to be able to think outside the box. And thinking outside the box requires you to always want to know more about things. So having hobbies is a part of remaining curious. Um, raising your hand before you know how to do something and having to figure it out is remaining curious. And I think that as a geotech, some of the best geotechs I've worked with around the world were very curious. They remained curious. Even those that have been you know, doing this 40, 50 years, they were still curious. Those are the ones I thought were the best. And then I would couple that with uh, the notion of just listening. It's so important, especially as you become more important, more responsible for, for people within an organization or within the industry. It, listening is so key. And I think that some of the best mentors that I've had over the years were very good listeners. So that's, those are two things I'd say. Remain curious. And I'd say, uh, listen, I back that up 100%. In fact, my career has been about curiosity. If I, all of those experiences and journeys I've had around the world, it's been from a curiosity that I've, I've, I've wanted to know more. I've, I've wanted to actually understand better. I would like to back up what the curiosity with, uh, with kind of the philosophy on, on how we, well, I've taken on my life. And there's two things. There's the, the values. What are your values? Know your values and stick to them. And, and one of the fundamental values is build trust. 
if there's anything, can you go back to working as a team, whether you're in a project team or you're in a, a family, build trust. Always believe the right intention is going to be there uh, from others and, and you have the right intention. And then the other, other one that plays uh, very well, because and often we will get challenged in our life and our curiosity will lead us to a point of, of decision-making. But the thing that we will get challenged with is our value. So you have values, which what you believe your life in, but know your value. If you are curious, you will come to conclusions, you will be able to deduct, uh, formulate a decision, but there's going to be people who are going to challenge you for sure. And this is part of the journey of life. If you know your value and why you're at the table and what you're bringing to the table, then you're able to confidently back it. And um, don't let others, and this is a key point, don't let others define your value. So, you know, you don't want someone across the table giving an opinion and then suddenly you change your value for what you think you are. Take the feedback, listen definitely, and always, always observe what is around you and be curious but know your core value. What is your your core value to to what you do? Love it. Oh, that's good. We got a lot, a lot, a lot for people to chew on. So thank you so much. We're going to come back in just a minute and we're going to close this one out with Leonard and our career factor safety end segment. Before we go on here, I'd like to recognize our sponsor for this episode, Tensar International. Check out Tensar Plus, the award-winning design software for construction professionals to design with geosynthetics and calculate their value on projects. Tensar Plus is simple to use with a powerful engineering system at its core. It leverages our decades of research and experience with soils all over the world, so you can count on your solutions working the first time, even in the most difficult conditions. Whether you're designing a crane pad or need to build a temporary road over muck, the cost, time, and carbon savings can be calculated, making comparison with alternatives simple. Specs. Reports and product data can be generated for your design. And training resources, research, and our third-party expert reviews are all provided conveniently in the software if needed. Usable both online and offline, the app is available in browser and on all major mobile platforms. Whatever you're working on, Tensar Plus is your toolbox for success. All right, welcome back. It's time for our career factor of safety end segment. In geotechnical engineering, just like many disciplines of engineering, it's important to incorporate a factor of safety into your design. Well, what about incorporating a factor of safety into your actual career? So today, of course, we're speaking with Leonard Sands from Frugro. Leonard, you've had a very successful career. Now, when you look back on your career, what's one thing that you've implemented in your career to give yourself, I don't know, let's call it a factor of safety in your career? Well, that, that's a challenging question. And, and uh, it, it, yeah, you, you have to... You have to dig deep to actually work out what is really the, the thing that I guess what you're touching on is defining your ceiling. Uh, oh. You could hit the ceiling and bounce off and then have to recover again. Um, so I, I, I would really say that um, there's two parts to people. Uh, and I'm touching more on philosophical approach to life mm-hmm. because there's the personal and there's the professional and whether you like it or not, your professional life and your business life or what you're doing, even academia, is an abstraction of your personal life. You, you actually live your personal life every day. It doesn't turn off. It doesn't switch off. Um, and often what we do is that in our professional life, we, we have a little box that we actually say, okay, I'm in a professional environment. 
I'm going to actually have a stiff back and I'm going to actually turn up and I'm going to be like this, you know? And, and often we put a bit of a shield there and that shield is actually designed or created by the box of personal experiences that we've chosen to put a cap on. And when we actually hit ceilings in our career, when we kind of, you know, as we're growing, those ceilings, uh, which limit our, our growth are more often than not defined by that box of issues or challenges that we've kept closed. And it's about us actually creating the ceiling and it's not, it's not the world around us. The world doesn't really define the ceiling to your future. You can actually have the future you want. It's about you and how you turn up to the world. And if you're able to be comfortable with opening that box of, of challenges you've had in your life and actually talking about them, regurgitating them and, and walking through them, you will find that your, your journey through life will be easier, happier, and you'll come across very few ceilings that, that, will, that you perceive generate frustration for your next step. So it's one, the curiosity. Two is, is dealing with those, those issues which are in the box and go deep. Uh, don't be afraid and work on it. And you'll actually have a successful personal life and a successful pre professional life and what you get into a happiness state. Yep. Man, that is, that is powerful. Thank you for that, Leonard. That was powerful. So thank you for coming on and for sharing all the great insights with us. You shared some really good information and advice that's going to be helpful for those that are listening and those that are watching. Now, if somebody wanted to reach out to you, where could people find you? Are you on social media, your website, or email you want to share? We can put in the show notes. What's the best way for people to find Leonard Sands? Yeah, certainly. You can you can find me on uh, LinkedIn. So uh, Leonard Sands, um, you'll see that uh, under the profile of, of Fugro working there. But uh, even I'll, I'll have the the email that I can share in the okay. in the uh, the comment section for you. So okay. really welcome uh, any any inspiring geotechnical engineers who want to kind of get some some directional guidance or even an opportunity in in uh, in, in the world uh reach out more than happy to help okay excellent now this is great thank you so much thank you appreciate it i hope you enjoyed the episode for today we would love to hear your feedback comments and our questions please feel free to go to geotechnicalengineeringpodcast.com where you'll find our summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. Until next time, we wish you the very best in all of your geotechnical engineering endeavors. Peace.